Well, the story that we have here is interesting on many different levels. If you would first turn in your copy of scripture and look at it, you, if you have an ESV like I do, or other translations may have the note, you'll notice right there at the beginning of chapter eight, it'll have something in brackets that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And then they go on and put it in there. You might actually have a copy of scripture that doesn't even put the story in there. Uh, that's what that means is that as, as we have found the earlier and earlier writings um, that we discovered that when John wrote this gospel, he didn't write this. It wasn't in there. Uh, that, that chases you down another um, whole another avenue of, of figuring out why exactly this story made it here. What's very interesting is this. Most Bible scholars do not disagree that it's an authoritative story, that it did happen. Um, what seems to have happened is that this story made its way around in different places because we have manuscripts early on that started including it, but they included it in a different place in John. And then they started finding this story included in manuscripts of Luke. And then all of a sudden it ended up here and that's where it stayed for ever until we get to this point. Um, one thing that we know is this, that John did not write this. And one thing you can look at is you can look at the language and it actually fits Luke's writing much better. Luke has this pattern, which he tells stories. And you find that pattern right here in this story. Um, and you don't find a lot of what Mark, I mean, uh, John traditionally uses, like the term scribe is used in here. This is the only time it's ever used in the gospel of John. He doesn't use the term scribes. Luke uses the term scribes very often. So when you find this, it seems like Luke is the one who probably wrote this. Um, but here's the thing. Most Bible scholars agree that it is a divinely inspired story. Now, how did it get to this point? Well, without going into a ton of detail, because I really want to focus on the passage this morning and not the history of the passage. But what we find is this story more than likely was told early on in the church but it wasn't included in the gospel of John. However, it may have been a story that John was fond of. John would have been here. He would have been an eyewitness to this story. Uh, and so what happened was the church early on didn't know what to do with the story. They probably, when they first included it, they included it in probably Luke. And then they moved it into John because it actually fits John's story much better. Uh, and I'll show you that in just a minute. And it's probably why it found itself here at the beginning of chapter eight is because of how chapter seven has flowed and what this story represents. And I'll show you that in just a minute. Um, beyond that, the church went through this very difficult time whenever they were separating from the world. You can imagine the likes of the Roman empire and the depravity that existed in that culture. Well, what they found was they found themselves withdrawing and in their withdrawing from the culture, they became, uh, without using this term in the most negative way possible, they became very legalistic. They loved having rules that was a standard of living. Well, this story doesn't really fit that very well. It almost sounds a lot like Paul being accused of antinomianism, you know, doing away with the law. It almost sounds like that's what Jesus is doing here because he's like, hey, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. And in the early church, when they, were, when they were literally losing their lives because of their faith in Christ, they demanded that people live a certain way and that God's law be exalted above all things. 
But that led to a lot of legalism as well. well. What we find is about the time the church began to embrace grace more fully is when this story found its way back into the scriptures and then found its way in a permanent way into the scriptures here. So that is why that story finds itself there. Now, I know what you're thinking is, well, if this wasn't in the earlier manuscripts, why are we even studying it? Why do we even have it in our Bible? And that's a really good question, a question that we don't have time to answer. And if you would have went to that conference just a couple of weeks ago that Kyle let, you would have already known all the answers. And so, um, hey, you're tough luck if you didn't go to it, all right? Because he talked about the transmission and textual criticism and all those types of things that are great for a seminar, probably not the best thing for a Sunday morning to go into all of that detail. But just know that there are many, many Bible scholars who believe that this should stay here, that it should be taught, that it was a real story that happened, and um, that it is a divinely inspired story. Now, I know there's questions that would surround that. Unfortunately, we don't have time to dig into all that, or we wouldn't actually be able to tackle the, the passage this morning. But saying all of that, let me just kind of show you why I think that it ended up here in the beginning of chapter eight in Gospel of John. First of all, when we see this story, at first maybe it seems out of place because we've been in this whole narrative of Jesus going in and teaching in the temple, and then all of a sudden it has this really terse transition there. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. It's really not mentioned anything about that yet. But we do know from the other gospels that at least in the last week of Jesus' life, when he was um, there celebrating the Passover, that every day he went to the Mount of Olives, and then every day he would come and teach in the temple. And this is where um, we have the picture of Jesus being that Passover lamb, because whenever God told them to celebrate Passover, the very first one, they were to bring a lamb into their home and inspect it for four days. Well, what the other gospels show us is that's exactly what happened. Jesus walks into Jerusalem on lamb selection day, and then for the next four days, he goes to the Mount of Olives at night and he comes into the temple and teaches and he's always questioned. They try and find something wrong with him. So in other words, the lamb is inspected for four days. And then ultimately before Jesus is given the death sentence by Pilate, he makes the declaration, I can find no fault in this man, which means that the Passover lamb was pure and spotless. Okay, so we do know that in that situation, there was a time when Jesus was going to the Mount of Olives every night, coming back into the temple and teaching every morning. And it could be that this story fits into that time frame right there in the last week of Jesus's life. They were trying to trap him, but it also fits the context of what we have here in John chapter seven. Again, remember in John, John doesn't tell us a chronological story. He's telling you a theme of Jesus's ministry. Even to this point, none of the stories that we are studying are in chronological order. So it's not a problem to put a story like this in the Gospel of John, whereas it would be in Matthew because it would be very confusing to insert something. But in the Gospel of John, it's more of a proof text that he's offering to establish these themes that he has presented to us about who Jesus is, that he is the light, that he is the word, that he is the son of God. So all of those things, this, this really fits it. And you're going to see in just a minute how it does. Now, there's also another reason I think that it fits well, and this is probably the why it ended up here at the beginning of chapter eight. And that is this theme of judgment. Okay, so think about this for a moment. Judgment has been the theme for the past few weeks, hasn't it? If you think about it, it has been them judging Jesus. 
If you think about it, mostly it is the crowd or it is the religious leaders who have been judging Jesus based on what he's done or what he said. In John 7, 15, he's not educated. In John chapter 7, verse 20, he has a demon. Uh, verse 27, he comes from the wrong place to be the Messiah. And you're going to see in chapter 8, as we move forward in it, they're going to say that his witness is not trustworthy in verse 13. They're going to say in verse 48, he's a Samaritan. So over and over again, we see these judgments that are being hurled at Christ. But in a very paradoxical kind of way, Jesus in this passage becomes their judge, not because he came to judge them, but because of who he is. He is the true witness. He is the one who comes from above. So as light always reveals darkness, what we find in this passage is that Jesus unmasks the true perspective and the true intentions of his enemies right here. He, he shows the true anger that lives inside of them. And this is the very reason I think this story fits so well here, because as much as they have cast judgment on him, he turns their judgment on themselves. So with that being said, let's look at this uh, verse by verse or section by section. Verse 53, which is odd because it's chapter 8 and it begins with 53. That's because, again, when they found the earlier manuscripts, they had put verse 53. Okay, so let's explain another thing. The verses and the chapters didn't come till much later. Okay, so we divided the things out into verses and chapters before they ever found the earlier manuscripts that didn't include this. So that means chapter 7 already had verses and chapter 8 already had the verses. Well, Originally, the first part of this was the end of chapter 7. Because if you read verse 53, it sounds better in chapter 7. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. It sounds like a good ending to where chapter 7 is. But when they found the earlier manuscripts, that was actually the beginning of what they inserted in there. So they bumped it down into chapter 8. Does that make sense? Because it's actually a part of that story. So whoever put that in there, they put that sentence there to give a good transition into this story. So they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. So there, he says he came again to the temple. This, this provides for us a very clear setting. And what it does is it insinuates that Jesus has been leaving each day, that he's been going to the Mount of Olives, and he's been coming back every day to teach in the temple. Now, he doesn't necessarily mean that he was living on the Mount of Olives at night because uh, the Mount of Olives is very close to a little town called Bethany. And if you remember, Jesus has very good friends from the town of Bethany, and it is Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So there's a very good chance that as he left at night, he was probably staying with them because we know from other gospel stories that he spent a lot of time with them. They were very close friends. So it could be he was going to stay with his friends, coming back during the day. Also, it says there that he sat down and he taught them. Now, one thing that we see in the gospels is that Jesus often sits down to teach. Now, that's an important thing to understand. It's a little detail, but an important detail because sitting in that time was a place of authority. 
Now, we don't typically think of it as that. We think more of a place of authority is on a pedestal like this, on a stage or being up in front of people or standing while everyone else is sitting. But if you remember, many times throughout the Gospels, Jesus sits down on the mountainside and teaches that he's sitting amongst the people. When he invites the children, he, he says, let them come to me. The picture there is that he's sitting and he invites them to come and sit in his lap or sit around him. So that is a picture of authority in that day and time. And that's not hard for us to understand if I just give you a few contexts. The religious leaders sat in the seat of Moses. Jesus tells us when he ascended into heaven that he did what? He sat at the right hand of the Father. The disciples had this big argument one day. Who is going to sit at your right and who's going to sit at your left? Because sitting is a place of authority. So Jesus is often pictured as sitting in his role of teacher throughout the gospels. So what we have here in this story, very much so in chapter seven and in chapter eight, is that Jesus is the seated teacher on the temple mount. Okay, so he's coming in every day and he's teaching and it tells us that he sits as he teaches. That's important because as he sits, that's a place of authority and he's sitting and teaching as an authoritative teacher in the biggest place of authority that you could possibly teach from. And that is on the temple mount itself. So again, Jesus is the seated teacher on the temple mount. Now, continue into the story, beginning in verse 3. The scribes, there's that word that doesn't show up anywhere else in the Gospel of John, but here. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Well, the text makes it obvious here that this was an effort on the part of the religious leaders to test Jesus. That's what he says right there at the beginning. He makes it very clear for us. They're trying to catch him in a place where no matter how he answers the question before him, they have a way that they can make an accusation against him. Because in this situation, he, if he answers on the part of the law of Moses and says, yes, we need to do what the law of Moses says, he has now subverted the law of Rome, which doesn't allow the Israelites and the chief priests to carry out their own capital punishment without the approval of Rome. So now he's inciting rebellion against Rome. They got him, okay? But if he says, well, you know, that is a, a, that's what we should do, but Rome says we can't do that. Well, now all of a sudden, he has submitted to the rule of Rome over the law of Moses. So they got him that way too. So they're asking a question that no matter which way he sides, that they're going to be able to make this accusation against him. So they think. But it immediately, when we read this, it elicits us to ask some deeper questions, some questions that we care about the text and we want to understand. Like, number one, where is the man in this situation? Because it says that this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Well, to be caught in the act of adultery means you also caught someone else. Where did this man go? Did he escape? Did he run away? Did he flee? What Was he made maybe just a, a plant by a vengeful husband? Was he planted by the religious leaders themselves? Um, by a group that was just trying to condemn Jesus? Was her husband among the accusers? Was her husband one of the ones standing there with a stone in his hand? Maybe she wasn't even married. 
Maybe this is a prostitute. Maybe this was someone who Jesus was known for hanging out with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. Maybe this was someone that he knew personally and they knew that he knew her and they knew that he knew that she was a prostitute. Therefore, her part of committing adultery was sleeping with other men, but she probably didn't have a husband of her own. Maybe that's a situation. And so they bring her before Jesus in, in an effort to maybe stir his compassion that they know he has towards people like this. So there's a lot of questions that we could ask. What law are they citing here? And what was the state of that law in Jesus's day? In other words, how did they actually carry out or honor those laws? Whose responsibility was it to actually carry out the punishment of these laws? So when we look at all of this, there's a lot of important things for us to really ask questions and find some answers to. For instance, as you dig deeper into the law, there's different penalties in different situations. Was this a man and a betrothed woman? Deuteronomy 22 speaks directly to that, verses 23 and 24. But if this was a married woman and a guilty man, then that's Leviticus 20.10. Deuteronomy 22.22 speak directly to that situation. One of them does have the, the uh, punishment of stoning. The other one has punishment, but it doesn't say by stoning. So in trying to trap Jesus, what they are doing are they're setting up mercy and justice against each other. Do you see that? In essence, what they're doing is they are trying to trap him by setting up mercy and justice as opposing principles to one another. In other words, if Jesus shows mercy to her, we've got him. But if Jesus goes for the act of justice and abides by the law of Moses, we've got him. Because they don't believe that both of those things can exist at the same time. And we often see those things in the same way, don't we? I mean, think about this. Their thought was that in choosing one over the other, Jesus would either be negating the law of Moses or he would be inciting a mob and therefore he would invite the retribution of the Romans on them. There's no way in their mind that he could answer in such a way that would make friends of grace and justice or mercy and justice. Now, let's see how Jesus handled it. Verse six, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, instead of giving in to their demands, what we see is that Jesus doesn't answer them at all at first. Now, the problem we have here is that this story, as great a story as it is, they don't give us information that we really want. And that is, what was Jesus writing in the sand? We have no idea. Was he writing out their sins? Was he writing out passages that would have immediately drawn their attention to reflect on themselves versus reflecting on others? Maybe passages that talk about grace and mercy. Um, was he writing out the 10 commandments. Because think about that. That's the only other time in scripture where we literally see the finger of God writing into organic material, a rock at that time, and he was writing out the 10 commandments. So maybe the second time we see God with his finger writing something, maybe he's writing the 10 commandments again. And as he's writing out each one, maybe he's calling them to reflect on, have you really 
kept these principles. We don't know exactly what he was writing, but we know that in essence, what he's saying is I'm not going to be controlled by you. I don't have to answer you on your time frame. We've seen this before in the gospel of John. We've seen Jesus over and over again, not do what they expect him to do or what others expect him to do. Remember the brothers, hey, come up here, show yourself powerful, do a miracle so everybody can see it. Jesus is like, y'all go up. I'm on the father's timetable. Again, here, they're trying to push him to answer. And instead of answering, he gets down to the ground and he begins to draw something into the ground. So the truth is that we will never know on this side of eternity exactly what it was that Jesus was writing. But one thing we do know is as this story develops, it doesn't seem to have an impact on them at first. Look at what verse seven says. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them. So as Jesus is writing, they don't seem to be really paying attention to what he's writing or whatever he's writing isn't interesting to them because they keep asking him. So in other words, Jesus is sitting there. I want you to get this visual in your head. They've said, hey, the law of Moses says that we should stone this woman. What do you say? Jesus gets down and he starts writing in the sand. Rabbi, we've asked you, what are we supposed to do with this woman? Now you can picture all these men beginning to pick up stones. Are, are we going to stone her or are we not? What are you going to do? What, what, what do you want to side on? We need to know. What is your answer in this? And after they keep asking him, keep asking him, keep asking him, apparently maybe they don't see what he's writing in the sand. He finally stands up and then he says this, the end of verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. Now, whatever it was that Jesus was writing, again, must have not have grabbed their attention because they keep asking the question. Jesus stands up, gives them this answer. And this is an answer that they surely did not expect to get. It was not a yes or a no. It wasn't this side or that side. He basically throws the question back at them to be the judge. Let the one among you who doesn't have any sin of his own, let him throw the first stone. Now, this may have been a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7. And it could be this is what Jesus was writing out in the sand, which is why they may have not have realized it yet. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7 says this, The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst." So in essence, I guess what Jesus was saying here was, he who was without sin, he who was the witness, whoever it is that saw this go on, whoever it is that witnessed this lady committing adultery, go ahead and pick up the first stone and throw it. Because to throw that first stone, what are you admitting to? How long did you watch? Who did you invite in to watch with you? Because you have to have two witnesses for it to even be valid. So as they're holding the stones, they're like, I'm not going to throw the first stone. I mean, I wasn't there. You asked me to come over here and be a part of this. And so they all start looking at each other, and all of a sudden, there must have been not a true witness. There must have been no one who actually saw this. 
Maybe this was a lady again, this is a prostitute. So they just know that she has this whole persona about her. That's probably why the man is not there because they never really actually caught her in that act. They were just gonna bring her before the because For them, she was just a pawn for what they were trying to accomplish. But Jesus maybe writes out Deuteronomy 17 and reminds them that the law says that whoever the witnesses were, they should be the first ones to throw the stone. And then after they throw the stones, everyone after them. But Jesus does more than just point this out. He actually calls them to reflect on their own hearts. Jesus, again, he highlights here the religious leader's lack of a proper perspective of the law. So what Jesus does here is he takes their legal issue and he makes it an issue of their own heart. Do you see that? So they're asking a legal issue. They're not asking a moral issue for themselves. They're saying, here's what the law of Moses says. Do we follow the law of Moses or do we not? And what happens is he takes their legal issue and he turns it into, well, what about your own heart? Where are you in this? Here's here's what's amazing, and you're going to see this develop. What Jesus did was he said to them without actually saying this, you know, the law of Moses was really never intended for you to use against somebody else. The law of Moses was intended for you to realize that you're a sinner, not that someone else is a sinner. The law of Moses was written so that you would know that you needed a Savior, not that somebody else needed a Savior. The law of Moses was written so that you would know that you should have died for your sins, not someone else should die for their sins. Because if you come to that first conclusion, then you have embraced self-righteousness. Somehow you have looked at the law and you have found other people guilty and yourself innocent. And if you have done that, you have missed the law of Moses. That's why Jesus does it the way he does. Hey, If there's any that don't have any sin among you, let that person be the one to throw the first stone. Think about that. I mean, this group of men, this pious, self-righteous, judgmental group of men, these men that had become so distorted in their understanding of what righteousness is, now find themselves brought down to the same level of the lady that they have brought here to accuse. They, in the beginning, felt completely worthy to oversee this lady's death. And Jesus, in one question or one statement, turns it on them and brings them down to her level. Nobody here feels like they can throw the first stone. These are some ugly, ugly passions inside these men, aren't they? But sadly, they're still the ones that we try to keep covered in ourselves even today. When we walk through the mall, maybe even at church, whatever the community events that we find ourselves at, maybe sometimes when we're serving in a ministry, serving at the women's center or serving in a homeless shelter, maybe your temptation is to think, I'm more righteous than these people that I'm around. Those are ugly, ugly passions, and they still exist inside each one of us. And it's so easy for us to point to the people in our culture and go, they deserve condemnation, and they deserve condemnation, and they deserve condemnation. And if that is your first response, you have missed 
what the law is all about. The law is not for you to figure out who deserves condemnation out there. The law is for you to reflect on to realize how much you deserved condemnation. And yet somehow in the great mercy of God, you escaped it. And now in the righteousness of Christ, you believe yourself to stand worthy to condemn someone else? Do you see how that doesn't make any sense at all? And somehow you have perverted the grace of God to ever come to the conclusion that you should stand in condemnation over someone else. Now, again, does that mean that we don't take sin seriously? Absolutely not, because this passage goes on and makes it very clear that Jesus takes sin very seriously. Matter of fact, the gospel goes on to show us that God takes sin very seriously. Because when you see the cross, it is the most gruesome way that a person could die in that first century. And I would argue that it is the most gruesome way capital punishment has ever been carried out by any organized group of people, countries or city-states back in the day. Why? Why did Jesus come at that time when the punishment was the worst that we've ever seen in humanity? Because that's what sin demanded. That's what the sin of the world demanded. And Jesus endured it for us. God takes sin very seriously. So what happens here is, as they reflect on what Jesus said, remember Jesus just stands up and makes a statement, and then he goes back to writing in the sand. Now maybe at that point they start looking at what he's writing, and whatever he's writing, 10 Commandments, Deuteronomy 17, I don't know what it was, you can imagine hearing the sound of rocks, doom, doom. And I'm, I'm telling you more than likely, they're not rocks that are dropping out of hands that are going, oh, how could I have done this? They're rocks that are being thrown onto the ground out of frustration and anger because he got the best of them. So it is boom and walking away. Boom, walking. Now I want you to picture for a moment, what is that woman feeling? Because you know she's not sitting there with her head up watching all of this. She has her head hidden. Imagine every time she hears that rock hit the ground, don't you think her whole body just tightens up because she's fully expecting to get hit by one of those? And yet she never does. We don't know how many people were standing there with a rock ready, but all we know is they drop their stones and they walk away. Boom, 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 boom. Kind of like popcorn in the microwave, right? You know, it's ready. But then all of a sudden, there's no more sound. Now remember, this is in the middle of the temple. It's not in backwoods Galilee. This isn't out in the wilderness somewhere. This isn't on a mountainside. This is in the temple. There's still people walking around, probably still a crowd even watching this as the men have walked away. And then all of a sudden, the woman picks her head up and she sees that all these men that were standing around her in judgment are gone and there's only one man left. And the man is Jesus. Verse nine, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. 
Now, I love the part where it says they went away one by one, because I just picture this kind of slithering away, you know, just one by one, work your way through the crowd that's kind of gathered around there in shame. You're walking away because they know exactly what you were trying to do, and it didn't happen, and so they are walking away. And apparently those with more life experience were the ones who arrived to the true conclusion very quickly. Maybe it's because they knew too many people there who would have been in the crowd to say, wait a minute, don't you throw that first stone. Because did you hear what that guy asked you? He said, if you're without sin, I know what you did. I know what you did when you were a kid. I know what you did. See, the thing is, a lot of times we love to cast judgment because of where we are right now. I'm not struggling with a sin right now. I'm not committing a sin right now. And so in this moment, I stand ready to judge you because right now my sin isn't exposed, yours is. I'm gonna bring judgment on you. But when we open it up and say, well, what's in your heart? What are you guilty of? What has flowed out of that place before? Now, all of a sudden, I can't throw a stone. Why? Especially in this crowd of people at the temple because they all know me. And at any moment, if I throw this stone, I might feel another one in the back of my head going, I know what you did. Because here's the thing, all of us are guilty. All of us are guilty. The point is, Jesus often accuses the accusers. That's what we find very consistent in the, in the gospels. Very seldom do you find him accusing the marginalized. You don't find him accusing those who are humble. You don't find those who, uh, him accusing the ones who come to him looking for relief in life. What you find is he accuses the accusers. Why? Because no one should stand in accusation against someone else unless you want the accusation of God to come at you. Isn't that true? What did Jesus say when he taught them how to pray? Forgive our sins as we do what? Forgive the sins of others. See, there, there's this economy of God that he has put into play. And his law completely, it becomes the foundation of that economy of God. And when we understand what the law's purpose is and we see Jesus living these things out in his ministry, we quickly realize what these things meant. That is for us to reflect on ourselves and not for us to stand in judgment of others. See, it's not that Jesus has made light of, of sin here. Quite the contrary. He's actually elevated internal sin to the level of public committed sin. You see, with the departure of all these legalistic men... The focus now shifts towards this woman and Jesus. Look at verse 10. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. So after dealing with the accusers, Jesus now focuses in on this woman. And there's probably still a crowd around. And notice here that Jesus calls her woman. We've already dealt with this before, right? Jesus often uses that term woman. We would not use that in our culture today because if you use the term woman, it probably has a derogatory meaning to it. Like, woman, get out of the way. Woman, you can't drive that car. Woman, quit pulling out in front of me. We say those kinds of things when we're mad at women, right? But that is not, it was a term of endearment in this day and time. Jesus said to his mother, woman, what, do I, what have I to do with thee? Sounds like he's being very negative. But when we understand that woman was a term of endearment, it doesn't sound negative. Um, 
here, woman, where are your accusers? There's, there's nothing here that, that sounds negative where Jesus is being accusatory here. Actually, he's very compassionate. So Jesus then asks two questions. He first says, where are they? Which she never gives any answer to, but it just kind of notices that they're not there anymore. And the second question is, has no one condemned you? And she responds, no one has condemned me. In other words, no one is still here and I have received no condemnation. And then Jesus being the only one righteous enough to actually condemn her, to actually stone her, says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So what you have here in this story is this beautiful picture of grace or mercy and justice going hand in hand. The first picture is very clearly they thought they would have him because there's no way that you could answer this question and have mercy and justice go together. And yet Jesus answers it in such a way that mercy and justice do come together. And then when he approaches this woman and he actually addresses her directly, where are your accusers? They're not here. Neither do I condemn you, mercy. Go and sin no more, justice. You see, this is a beautiful picture of what the gospel is. Grace does not excuse sin. Do you understand that? Paul even tells us, should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? Absolutely not, he says, because grace does not excuse sin. It's evident from this passage here that it's true. So when someone encounters Jesus, there is always a demand for transformation, right? I mean, you see this over and over again. What about Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you must be born again. What about the paralytic? Take up your mat and walk. Sin no more. He tells them later on in the temple. Here, hey, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. So although this story, story hardly promotes sin, what happens is when we live in fear, we desire very strict rules to govern us. Do you understand that? Legalists are people who live in great fear. They have a fear that society is gonna spiral out of control unless we do these things right here. They have a fear that their own lives are gonna spiral out of control if, if we don't do these things right here. They live in the fear that their children are gonna live in ultimate rebellion if they don't force them to live by these laws. And what happens is very easily they take something that was so beautiful and they make it something ugly and mean. And it ultimately is bred out of fear. This story reminds us that it doesn't have to be grace or righteousness, but that Jesus perfectly balances and embodies both of them. And so the way that we live out the law as parents, we should do the same thing. We shouldn't run our homes as legalists, whipping or cracking that whip all the time, like you gotta do this, and if you don't do this, you've, you've disappointed me. And somehow we have to balance just like Jesus does, grace and the law. And we have to do it in the way that he does it, understanding that we're all fallen and understanding there's only one way to find true transformation. And it's not by abiding by the law. It's by being transformed by the Holy Spirit. It's not by being perfect. It's by admitting that you're not so that that transformation can begin to happen in your life. John Piper says this, 
The most remarkable point of this story is that Jesus exalts himself above the law of Moses, changes its appointed punishment, and reestablishes grace as the foundation of righteousness. I thought that's a great way of summarizing that. Think about that again. The most remarkable point of this story is that Jesus exalts himself above the law of Moses, right? He interprets the law of Moses. He says, this is the way it should be. He says, hey, does anyone condemn you from the law of Moses? No, then neither do I condemn you. Why? Because I am greater than the law of Moses. He's God. He exalts himself above the law of Moses. Beyond that, he changes his appointed punishment. The law of Moses is very clear. You catch someone in adultery, you stone them to remove that evil from among you. Jesus changes it because you know why? He's gonna take the stones. There's still gonna be a payment for the sin. He's gonna pay it. And because he's gonna pay it, he then, this is the last part of that, he reestablishes grace as the foundation of righteousness. Now, because Jesus is gonna pay the penalty of that sin, righteousness isn't obtained by being perfect. Righteousness is being obtained through grace, through faith in Jesus. Jesus is the merciful judge to the humble, yet he never simply covers up sin. He treats sin actually with great severity. And that, that should remind us that the door of grace has clearly been opened, and on the other side is transformation. Do you see that? I want you to picture that. In this story, we see the door of grace opened. In other words, all you have to do to accept it is to walk through it. That's it. There's nothing, you don't have to be a certain level. And I want you to know in this story, there's everyone who has an opportunity to respond in that way. All of those men, although they dropped their stones and walked away, could have said, you know what? You're right. We are all sinners and we are in need of mercy. Do you know where we can find one? Jesus said, here's the door of grace. Walk on through. We've already seen over and over again, he offers this to his enemies. And yet in this story, it seems the only one who actually experienced the grace was the one who's marginalized in society. She walks through. But notice in walking through, what's the expectation? Go and sin no more. Salvation, walking through the door of grace. Walking through the door of grace expects transformation. And that's what the gospel tells us over and over and over again. Here's my question. I want you to think about this today. Who are you in this story? Which one are you closest to? You could be the woman. Maybe your sin has been exposed. Maybe not everybody here knows it, but it's kind of like if they just did a little research, they could find it. Um, they did a Google search on you, they could find it. You've been bankrupt, you're divorced several times, whatever it may be. Um, maybe you have a conviction, whatever it is, they could figure it out. And you feel like that woman. You're walking away or walking around always expecting to be condemned. And then the way that you expect to be condemned then determines how you live your life. And you live your life under that condemnation. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? They're not here, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
You know, some of us just need to hear the power of that gospel mitigates not only God's wrath, but it also mitigates the wrath of others. That doesn't mean it's going to change all their hearts towards you, but what it does mean is it doesn't matter what they think. It doesn't matter what they know about you. It doesn't matter how they see you. Guess what? They're as messed up as you are. We just don't know it yet. It hasn't come out, but it's in there. If they haven't already admitted it, they're hiding it inside. It's there. And the beauty of the gospel is it says it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It only matters what God thinks. And God says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Maybe you're the Pharisees in this. Maybe you're the one who walks around and if you're honest, you find yourself in condemnation of other people. You find yourself looking and thinking other people are less than you. I'm telling you, that's a dangerous place to be because what you're doing is you're condemning people according to a law that you are obviously not applying then to yourself or else you would not condemn them because you would then yourself would be condemned by it as well. When we understand grace, we understand the depth of grace. We sing about it all the time with these beautiful songs, these beautiful hymns that we sing. It talks about the deep grace of God. If it's deep enough for you, why can't it be deep enough for others? The only other people I can think of in this passage are the people who are standing around watching all of this, who never said a word, just watched it unfold. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been on the outside watching church and you see all the hypocrites come in here and sit down and you think, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to go to church for all the hypocrites. And I would say to you, the most hypocritical person I can think of in the world would be a person who uses hypocrisy as a reason not to go to church. Think about that for a little while later, okay? But the point is, we, we even though we may not consider ourselves very religious, can actually have a very religious attitude. I'm not going to go to church, all those hypocrites. You know what you did? You just stood in judgment over all of them. Somehow you're better than them because you don't try to be good. You just are bad. Is that really where you want to go in life? Just because you're honest about your badness? Don't you want something more? Don't you want a future? Don't you want a promise of eternity? Don't you want your life to mean something? See, in this story, we are to reflect on who we are and how we have responded to the gospel of Jesus. And so what I want you to do is to take this incredible story and reflect on it today. And I want you to reflect on it from different aspects of who you could be and have you ever been in these situations. The one person we could pretty much guarantee that we're not in the story is Jesus, because <laughs> we're not perfect and not righteous all the time like he is. Um, but you know, the beauty is if you are a follower of him, you should be more like him. Not in the sense that you're God, but in the sense that you're compassionate, that you're looking for the marginalized and that you're releasing them, that you're offering them an opportunity to walk through grace just like you did. See, in this story, we should begin to reflect on what is it that I need to change about the way I think, about the way I relate to the gospel, about the way I relate to God himself. What sins do I need to confess to be open and honest about my own brokenness so that not only can I find healing, but going back to the passage before so that healing can flow out of me like rivers of living water. See, that's why this story fits so well here. It's a picture of what that 
accepting that rivers of living water, accepting that thirsty soul, the, the gratifying taste of the living water of Jesus. And when that comes into us and satisfies us, we can become the source for so many other people. But if we haven't tasted of that, and all we have is religiosity and legalism, all that flows out of us is condemnation and belittling other people and further marginalizing people who are already struggling with their own sins and their own identities, and we further push them out to the margins. No, we need to be the ones who are speaking grace and truth. And listen, they do not contradict one another. Let's pray together. God, what a powerful example of the gospel, and may it set heavy on our minds and our hearts today. I pray today, no matter who's here and where they stand in regards to you, that today you would open their eyes to something that they need to respond to. Lord, I pray that the hearts that are here that have heard would be softened, Holy Spirit, so that they may receive the seed of the gospel word. And the word made flesh dwelling among us would become real to them and so much so that not only does it satisfy them, but it becomes a source of satisfaction for others. God, make these things real in us. May we truly be your church, a place of healing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and may he give you his peace. Thank you. Blessings as you go in the name of Jesus.